Are you ready to start living richer? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Live Richer podcast, hosted by Jamie Catmull, a podcast created for people to challenge and manage their ideas of wealth, culture, and money across the world, bringing you the best personal finance advice to make more, save more, and live richer. Now, here's your host, Jamie Catmull. everyone and welcome to the Live Richer podcast. Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Tori Dunlap. She is an internationally recognized money and career expert and podcast host. Her podcast is actually number one when it comes to business podcast. After saving 100k at age 25, Tori quit her corporate job in marketing and founded her first 100k program. Now, I think it's pretty awesome that a person at only, it says here, 25 years old was able to save 100K, quit her job, and then start the programs that you guys, you've started and gone out there and helped so many women, not only with their finances, but to quit their jobs and to start investing, to get raises, to just do some really amazing things. And Tori, how did you get 2 million, 3 million followers on social media? I'm just, I mean, how did you do that? And where did you gain the confidence to just go out there and start sharing your story? Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, it, it's a lot of different factors. I could probably explain for, for a couple hours how we did it. But the big thing was um, I realized that I had a financial education from my parents and that was a privilege. And with that privilege came a responsibility. And so I started the blog that later became her first 100K on the side of my 9 to 5 in marketing. And what I really realized is that we don't have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have financial equality. So my work is not just in teaching people, specifically women, around how to pay off debt, how to save money, but seeing those acts as a form of protest. So in a society or in a system that actively does not want you to have money and actively gatekeeps financial information from you, one of the most radical forms of protest is you actually becoming financially confident and becoming financially stable. And I think that that kind of idea or that movement of financial feminism is what really connected us to people. So um, I'm really proud of the fact that I am the sole owner of her first 100K. We've never taken on any venture capital. We've never paid for ads. We've done it all organically. And so I think when it comes to growing that following on social media, which, as you said, is now over 3 million um, having one of the top business podcasts in the world, I I'm so humbled by it. And I'm also so proud of my team. And I think really the the thing that has changed the game for us is approaching these conversations without judgment, without shame, and showing again that these these conversations around money, these acts of getting your financial shit together are forms of protest against a society or a system that actively does not want you having money. Here's one thing that I know a lot of people that look at your stuff want to know is how do I get a raise? I mean, I don't even feel like I have enough money to invest. I think a lot of women feel yeah. that way. They're scared to get in the investing game. They think they need more money. They're afraid to ask for a raise. And one thing you're great at was getting the raise it's, and telling people how to get that raise. What are some of the top things you would tell a woman to do if she's wanting to go and ask her boss, hey, can I get that 10% raise this year? What would you tell yeah. them to do? Yeah, I think the two things that you're needing to think about when it comes to salary negotiation, you need to focus on the data and your value. So the data is simply like, what are other people getting compensated at either in your area or with your level of expertise or your education? Because we all want a million dollars, right? Or we all want well, to. I know dollars. I do. 
Right. But you can't just waltz into your boss's office and be like, I deserve a million dollars, please. Or I deserve, you know, <laughs> I, I can pay my bills at $70,000. So that's what I think I should be getting paid. That doesn't work, right? You have to prove rather that the data is saying you should be getting compensated at this rate. You're talking to very data-driven people, right? And so you need yeah. to produce this data. Starting with places like Glassdoor, Salary.com, Payscale are great places to start. But these are seeing you as a very two-dimensional person rather than someone who has you know, varied skill sets and expertise. So you want to go one step further and discuss this, this salary negotiation with colleagues, with mentors, with people you met at networking events, recruiter friends, and say, hey, based on what you know about me and based on the job description, what do you think I should get compensated at? Or what do you think is a, is a fair compensation? Because they're seeing you as a full person, right? And also seeing the specific requirements for this job or for the job you're already doing. The second thing is highlighting your value. So what ways have you contributed to the company or will contribute to this potential company? And it's ways that you've not only done the job you were hired on to do very well, it's ways you've you've gone above and beyond past that. So ways you've saved the company money, projects you've implemented, people you've managed, um, you know, balls that were dropped that you picked up, right? Anything that you can show that proves that you're extremely valuable to the organization is going to help you be able to convince somebody to give you the raise. And when it comes to negotiations, I think we as women especially think that their arguments are fights or conflicts, right? They're like, okay, we got to unsheath our sword and put on our boxing gloves and like, I got to fight to the death to get what I want. And that's not a negotiation. That's a, that's a fight or an argument. And I like saying that negotiations are collaborations, not conflicts, meaning that you and this other person, your boss or potential boss, are not on opposing teams. You're on the same team trying to solve a problem, and that problem is you not being compensated fairly. So you're working together with this other person to solve a problem. And I'm sure you're a great problem solver because it's probably why you deserve a raise, right? But you are working with this other person, this boss or potential boss, to find a solution to the problem of you not being compensated at a fair rate. What are you, you talk to a lot of women. How many people do you know that go in there and they're asking for a job or actually getting the raise? I was talking to another woman today about a study they did at Laurel Road. And she mentioned to me that women were going to be asking for raises this year, more likely. And I was yeah. wondering how many women actually get it. Do you know? I, I mean, you talk to a lot of women, so no, I'm curious. But this is this is the interesting thing. So when I talk about financial feminism, right, which is, you know, I host the Financial Feminist yeah. Podcast. I'm a leader of this movement. The whole thing with financial feminism is we can't just teach you how to, you know, pay off debt or how to negotiate your salary if it isn't also coupled with policy change or with systemic change, right? When it comes to personal finance and personal finance decisions, 10% of it is your own choices. 90% of it is circumstantial, right? And I think for a really long time, we didn't have conversations around systemic oppression as it relates to personal finance, right? We told you, oh, well, if you want to be rich, just work really hard. Not acknowledging that we live in a sexist, racist, ableist system, right? In society. And so this is why when we're talking about any sort of financial topic, but specifically you asked around negotiation, it can't just be arming women or other marginalized groups with information and with knowledge. It has to be coupled with systemic and societal change. So that means that when I go and ask for a raise... I am not only equipped with the information and the knowledge to be able to do that effectively, but that the other person's response is not going to be seeing me as ungrateful or greedy or having the audacity to ask for more money because they don't think that about men, 
right? And so that's part of this as well as you can't just teach somebody how to go about bettering their personal finance situation without also acknowledging that there's very little control they have over the response to that. And so to be honest with you, there's plenty of times, unfortunately, where, of course, we exist in a society that views women who want money as greedy or ungrateful. And so this is why we can't just talk about, you know, the the specific words to say in a negotiation. We also have to talk about making companies more equitable, companies more receptive to women asking for what they deserve, companies offering paid family leave, which is we're the only, you know, quote unquote, developed country in the world to not require paid family leave. You know, there's it's like an onion. And as soon as you start peeling back layers, you're peeling back layers forever. So to answer your original question, I don't know the stat of how many people I know it exists out there. I don't know it off the top of my head of how many people ask, but don't get it. But we have various factors, right? Maybe it is they they didn't go about asking in the right way, right? Or more likely, probably what happened is that was not received well because of some some bias around you know how this person works or who this person is. You know, what would you tell someone that asked for a raise and they were told no? Yeah, and then the if, best thing the, you can I do. Mean, what do you do as, as that female? or even Mel or anyone goes in there and they ask for this raise and the person basically makes you feel like you are ungrateful to even ask, what do you do? What do you tell people? You can say, um, okay, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, you telling me and letting me know what sort of, uh, skills do I need to build or what sort of performance do I need? Um, like what sort of performance metrics do I need to hit in order to get that raise in six months? Right. So you literally make them tell you, these are the exact things we would need from you, right? In order for you to make this level of money, you go out there and you do it, right? Or at least you get to a point, maybe they're asking for crazy things and you go, well, I think that's unreasonable. How about this, right? <laughs> and you literally have, you get this in writing somewhere, right? Maybe you talk about yeah. it verbally and then you email them after and you say, hey, thank you for a great discussion today about my performance and about my compensation. As discussed, here's what you know we highlighted as metrics to hit in the next six months in order to be compensated at X amount of money a year. And then you spend the next six months going out and achieving all those goals. And then you arrive on their doorstep, uh, you know, after six months going, <laughs> hey, we did all of these things basically kindly. Where's my money? Exactly. I think that's some really good advice is don't take it personal. Like I, that's kind of what no. you said right there, right? Don't take it personal. This isn't about you as a person. And then you went in and you basically called them out by saying, okay, what do I need to do? And right. okay, and now I've and done it. And it shows you're a team so player, you right? You're like, yeah. cool, let me, let me go do this. And the other thing too, is if for whatever reason you negotiate and it doesn't go well in terms of not like going well for me in a negotiation and putting well in quotes is like, you did it, you accomplished it regardless of the outcome, right? That is you doing a negotiation well, because sometimes again, you can only control what you can control and what you say or do. You can't really control the response to it. So the fact, even if you try negotiating, that is a that negotiation went quote unquote well, like thumbs up to you. I will say part of the reason why we negotiate is of course not to just get more money and more benefits right now. It's also because you're trying to figure out if this is a company you can grow with, right? And you especially figure this out if you're negotiating for a new job, you have more power negotiating for a new job than you will ever have. Even if you stay and make like a blood pact at a company for decades, like you will have more power when you're first negotiating and you're also like watching their behavior. 
if you negotiate kindly, respectfully, and you present it well, and they don't respond well to that, that's a huge red flag, right? Where either you don't want that job, you don't want to work with that company, or if you're already at that company, maybe it's time to start looking for something else, right? So that's part of the reason we negotiate too, is if for whatever reason, if they you come to a negotiation, especially if you've been there and you're asking for a raise and you've gone above and beyond for this company and you know that they have the money and they're not willing to give it to you, might be time to start moving on, right? Because they're not willing to see your value and they won't be willing to see your value for your entire tenure of employment there. I love that. I think that's really great advice. And I think a lot of times women get afraid of the unknown and you'll stay in something longer than yeah, go out well, and venture out because it's safe. Told, it's safe, you know? Right. And we're actively told that loyalty is important, right? Yes, you but are always told loyalty is important. Loyalty, here's loyalty, thing, loyalty. Though, here's the thing is that companies can take really good care of you and they can be um, so giving most of the time. They will they will cut you without a moment's notice, right? They will cut your hours. They will fire you. They will lay you off, right? And so you need to have the same sort of mentality of this is working until it isn't. And don't be afraid to go somewhere else if it's no longer working. And that's a great lead into why you need to be investing your money. So if you feel like you can quit that job, you have some money somewhere. So that little emergency savings account or just that savings account that maybe I need to live off for a little bit until I get that job I really want where they really appreciate me. Real thing I did. Yeah. And I would say don't invest your emergency savings. Please put that in a high yield savings account. Don't put that in in an investing account. But no, that's actually what happened to me is I quit um, my first job out of college to go to another job. It ended up being the most toxic environment. And I quit after only 10 weeks without another job lined up and then spent three months unemployed. And I would do it 100 times over again because one, I had to get out. It was really harmful on my mental health. And the reason I was able to get out too was because I had an emergency fund. I had enough money to sustain myself for a period of time where I didn't just find the next job, but the right job. And I was able to do that and leave that toxic situation because I had emergency savings. So how much did you have in emergency savings? Yeah, I had about six months of living expenses at that point. Um, and actually part of my 100K journey you mentioned in the in the uh, in the intro there. So part of, you know, her first 100K's origin story was my own journey to save 100K. And that was around the time where I didn't know if it was possible because I wasn't, of course, making any money. I was also spending the money I had already saved. So, um, yeah, it was a good, yeah, it was like three months. It was like January to March of what was that? 2018 where I was living off of my emergency savings. And again, this is why I tell women, this is the power of financial stability and financial education is you get to leave toxic situations you don't want to be in anymore, whether that's a relationship or a job. You get to donate to causes you believe in. You get to get married or not get married or have kids or not have kids or start a business or retire early. You have all of these options open up to you when you have that financial stability. And so for me, having that emergency fund meant I didn't have to stay another day in a situation I didn't want to be in it and and exist in that toxicity anymore. And having having a financial foundation and financial stability means that you don't have to put up with toxicity. I think a lot of people feel nowadays that they can't even save for an emergency fund. I mean, what do yeah. you tell those women? They're like, hey, I'm barely making ends meet over here, Tori. How can I do this? I mean, what? I feel trapped. I don't feel like I can get out. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. What are my options here? I mean, what are you giving people when it comes to that situation? To be honest with you, none of us have that answer. And this is where the policy change has to be coupled. 
I am only good as a personal finance expert if you have some sort of money, right? If you have some sort of money to save. And I'm not saying that, I'm saying that with all the empathy in the world and acknowledging that like even being a personal finance expert has a level of privilege in it, right? Of saying like, I am going to, right? And that's why it has to be, this is why for me, financial feminism, again, is it's like, it's not enough to just teach people how to do these things. It's also like, how do we vote? How do we protest? How do we donate to causes we believe in? How do we get policy change? Because to somebody living paycheck to paycheck, you can't apply any of the advice I give. And I fully know that and I fully acknowledge that. If you do have some flexibility in your in your financial situation, even if it's 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, do everything you can to set up as many of your financial financial steps or financial tasks on autopilot as possible. So paying your bills on autopilot, also setting up an automatic transfer from your checking account to your savings account to automate your savings. Again, even if it's just 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, setting aside that automatic transfer, one, helps you not even think about it. It happens without you even noticing. And two, you're doing it first. We call it in the personal finance industry, paying yourself first, right? Yeah. As opposed to leaving it to the end of the month when you're like, oh, I don't have anything left in my account anymore. If you are like paying more money to Netflix or HelloFresh or some sort of automated service than you're setting aside for yourself, like I'm not asking you to cancel your Netflix subscription. I'm just saying if you're giving more money to a billion dollar corporation than you're setting aside for yourself every month, you're more deserving of that $14 than Netflix is. Or you're as deserving of $14 as your Netflix is, right? So setting aside that automatic transfer again, even if it's just a really small amount of money, helps a ton. But to answer your question about living paycheck to paycheck, you're exactly right. Like this is this is the sh- part, excuse my language. This is the terrible part about living in a systemically oppressed system and systems that are so entrenched in in misogyny and racism and all these things is is it there's there's this huge lack of support when it comes to, you know, someone's finances and someone's ability to afford just living. And um this is why again it's like a drinking game. Take a shot every time I say it, but it has to come with policy change, right? <laughs> it's not enough to just tell people, here's how to save money. You have to, you know, talk about money and make this something that isn't as taboo and start actually changing the very system that we exist in. So, you know, it's always been a big taboo subject to talk to your coworkers or anybody yep. about how much they make or what's going on. What do you think we can do to change that? And do you think we need to have an open dialogue amongst women and people to teach us that, hey, it's okay to talk about money. It's okay to talk about how much you make. It's okay to talk about these types of things. So there's a lot of narratives that get perpetuated about money. And the number one narrative we hear is that talking about money is taboo, right? Or talking about money is impolite or it's gauche and you just shouldn't do it. This is a narrative perpetuated by a patriarchal system. Because if the patriarchy tells you, don't talk about money talking about money is impolite, don't do it. They profit off of our silence. They profit off of our inaction because they already have money. They already have power and they're talking about it. They're talking about money all the time. They're talking about how to get richer. They're talking about how to get more power. And so if they tell you, don't talk about money, that's impolite, they profit off of your silence. Similar, another narrative. Um, just work hard. If you work hard, you'll be a millionaire. If you work hard, you'll just be rich, right? Are you talking about Kim there? Kim Kardashian. She just sure. said that this week. <laughs> sure. She just, just, what was it? Just get, get off, off your, your ass and ass work. And work. Harder, I think she said. Yeah, just work harder. But again, it's a bootstraps narrative, right? Does not acknowledge systemic oppression and gaslights you and tells you, you know, tells the single mom who is working three jobs, oh, just work harder and you'll be fine, right? Another narrative. 
Investing is intimidating. Don't do it. Investing is complicated and women, it's not really for you. So don't worry about it, right? That is an active narrative keeping you from building wealth and building power. Oh, women, the reason you're not rich is because you spend frivolously. Okay, what's frivolous spending? Oh, manicures and handbags and high-heeled shoes. Yet men are not deemed frivolous spenders when they buy season tickets to a football team. Right. So that is it's so very, true. And it's not like it's it, cheap to go to those games when you're looking at three hundred dollars like a cheap ticket. Nope. You know, I mean, they're nope. thousands of dollars to do these types. There's of things. a huge double standard. Right. And ironically, again, these very things that we're being told are frivolous are the things that we have to do in order to present ourselves as a human woman in society. If I show up to a meeting in sweat, like a professional meeting in sweatpants, no makeup and my hair's not done. Guess who's going to get punished for that? Me. Right. So it's very interesting because we're actively told, oh, you're spending money on frivolous things. Yet at the same time, we are docked for not showing up and not being what everybody considers to be. I'm putting this in quotes, a professional woman with her handbag, with her heels, with her, you know, six hundred dollar dyed hair. Right. Oh, yeah. So, again, these are all narratives that are perpetuated to make money a shameful experience make money a very like siloed individual experience and to cause us to have a horrible relationship, not just with money, but with getting more money or building more money. And so all of these narratives, again, are from a system that is trying to prevent you from having agency. So one of the biggest acts of protest against that system is talking about money, talking about, you know, if you feel shame around money talking about how much money you make with coworkers, with other people. You know, I literally, it's kind of like a requirement now to being friends with me because I am a financial expert, but like all my friends know we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about money and we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to talk about how much we make and we're going to talk about our fears and our hopes around money. And we're going to talk about how good it feels to be able to afford a vacation. And we're going to talk about how scared we are about the economy and about what's going to happen. Like all of these conversations men have been having for centuries and marginalized groups, women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, disabled people. These are the folks getting left out of those conversations. I think what you're doing is great going out there and helping and bringing awareness to a thing that really needs to be brought to light and talked about. And I don't know of anyone else who's really gone out there and done it the way you have, especially on social media, getting right out there in front of people in an entertaining way to change that narrative. And I think that was genius on your part, Tori, to do that. There's a bunch of people doing it. I want to fully acknowledge, like, black and brown people have been doing this work for a long time. (laughs) But you're doing a great job for for females out there and female white women who are very afraid to talk about money with their other coworkers to talk about that because they've always been taught you don't talk about money. As long as I can remember, it was rude if I asked somebody, "Um, what do you make? I was rude right. for asking that. I was told I was rude for asking that. I just thought I was having conversation to know if I'm making enough or if I needed to make more. So I love that you're changing that stigma there. And I was curious, how were you brought up? I mean, you're extremely confident mm. as a female and you were confident enough to even quit your job and to start your own business here. What was it like? I, I never asked this question to anyone, but with you, I just had to ask, like, what are you, what did they do? that made you such a confident individual that you were able and knowledgeable when it comes to money? Yeah. Um, 
I'm the first to acknowledge again that I had parents who were really committed to educating me about money. And I didn't realize that was a privilege until I started having conversations with women who were saying like, what is it? What is a Roth IRA? And I was the, the friend all my friends were coming to for advice because I had parents who sat me down and literally told me, here's how a credit card works and here's how to manage one responsibly. My parents still don't even own a debit card and neither do I. Like we put everything on credit and pay it off on time and in full every month. And like I learned that from a very young age. I learned that, yeah, if you can't afford something, you don't buy it. And if you have an emergency happen, you've hopefully saved up enough money to cover yourself in case of that emergency. My dad sat me down, opened up my Roth IRA with me, walked me through the whole process. It still felt like I was written in German, which is part of the reason I actually launched an investing education app a couple months ago, because I remember going through that process for the first time and being so lost. Um, but he helped me get that started. And really the the catalyst, honestly, for me, I majored in theater and communications in college. Like, no way. Business. I was yeah. thinking you must have been a marketing or a business major. Well, I, I majored in org com, which is like marketing with less math, right? So I had basically, I have basically a marketing degree and then I have a theater degree. And if you would have told me five years ago, Tori, you're going to be a financial educator and you're going to talk about personal finance, <laughs> I probably would have like vomited out of boredom. And then I would have been like, no, no way. And so the interesting thing was I graduated college in May of 2016. And Trump got elected, of course, not soon after that. And I thought, you know, as a 21, 22-year-old, that I was going to be coming into adulthood and coming into womanhood in a very different America than what actually happened. And, you know, I had to really get honest with myself around my privilege. And again, as someone who is, you know, who was pretty young, fully understanding like what it meant to be an adult and what it meant to be a cisgendered straight white woman in in America. And also realizing again that like, that financial education I got was a privilege. And with that privilege came a responsibility. And when I started doing more research and started talking to women and started my own personal finance journey and realizing again, like being able to quit that job without another one lined up, being able to go on vacations, being able to spend really mindfully, I was realizing that this for me felt like the key to the equality equation of if we can get more money into more women's hands, we can get more money into more marginalized groups' hands, everything starts to change. And I saw that in my own life. I saw that with with friends of mine, right? Giving giving them advice, helping them build their own wealth meant they had agency. And that is what I believe I was put on this earth to do. And it became very clear to me, like, oh, this is my life's work. And so started her first 100K, um, hit my own 100K journey of saving $100,000 at 25 in was that September of 2019. Um, went to Italy for 10 days to celebrate with my best friend was on Good Morning America and quit my job three weeks later and then haven't looked back. We're now a team of 15 spread throughout the world. I get to give women jobs, which is the coolest thing. I get to like throw money at causes I believe in without even a thought. Um, I get to, yeah, take trips. I get to build a company. I get to, uh, yeah, this is the feeling I want for every single person, especially women. This feeling of not having to be in a situation they don't want to be in anymore taking care of themselves so they can take care of others. Like this is, this is what I want for every woman. And you're doing a great job helping them all. I, I had a question. I didn't get a chance to look. Is the um, app free or is your finance 101? Does it cost? I mean, if I wanted oh, to start um, for, for treasury. Yeah. yeah for so treasury. treasury is our investing education platform. Yeah. We launched it in January and we already have um, $11 million um, in treasury. So people who have uh, in invested uh, in treasury, we already have over 11 million in assets. Basically, we've, we've built something very different. 
with DIY platforms, when you're going to invest, right, you basically have two options. You have one, the DIY platform, which is Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, right? And these are great because they're not going to charge you in fees. But if you are a beginner investor, you have no idea how to navigate that platform. You have no idea, right? On the opposite side, you have a robo-advisor, right? Um, Elevest, Acorns, Betterment, Wealthfront, Wealthsimple, right? A bunch of these. And they're going to take a small fee, but they're going to do the whole process for you, which is great to get you started, but they are fishing for you rather than teaching you to fish. So what we did was kind of like a hybrid of both and we built Treasury. So the Treasury experience starts with a workshop. You pay $99. You sit live with me on an Investing 101 workshop where I'm teaching you what's the difference between a stock and a bond? How do you research funds? What is a mutual fund? What's an index fund? How do you research your stocks in order to make a smart, educated choice? And then you actually make an investment live on the workshop. So we're recording this on a Friday. The most recent workshop we did was last Wednesday, so two days ago. We had over $60,000 invested just in that workshop live, which was so cool. And so then you're kind of brought into the treasury experience, which is like, we give you daily challenges around learning about investing. There's a... um, a forum where you can ask questions and either, you know, I'm responding or um, the treasury co-founder Elias, who's my business partner is responding or, you know, other members of the community. And so it very much is like, we wanted to get you started in a way that prevented overwhelm because that's what we heard from everybody is I'm too overwhelmed and too intimidated. And I've tried to invest before, but I have no idea how to navigate any of these platforms and actually turn them into confident investors. And so yeah, we've had over 2,000 people already. And again, $11 million invested in the platform. And we built basically the thing that I don't think exists out there, which is equipping, especially women, with the tools they need to be an educated investor rather than having somebody do it for them. Yeah, it looked really great. I looked at it um, before our call and I was like, oh, I need to ask her some more about that and see what yeah, that's going on Yeah, we're really there. proud of it. We've worked for a couple of years on it. And um, and again, like non-judgmental no finance bros, no Wall Street chads allowed, like in a in a very male-dominated, <laughs> like if you go on Reddit, right, it's just a bunch of like straight white men yelling their stock picks. And I'm just <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want this. I got to build something that's not this. Well, I'm glad that you're creating a platform for women that they can feel comfortable to ask questions and to be able to handle their finances better and to get out there and invest. And especially now where it's really scary to invest because we're all losing money right now on the stock market, a lot of us. So I'm sure you have tons of people who have questions and they're emailing you and asking you, Tori, what should I do? What should I do? I feel like I just lost half my money. Please help me. So I guess that's one great thing about being on the platform. They could call or, I mean, they can text you or email you and ask you these questions. Right, exactly. Yep, nope. And that's the idea, right? Is that... um, the financial journey, right, is not just like one one hour or one bit of your time. It's a lifelong thing. And you're going to have really exciting moments, right, where stock market's at a high or you just got a raise. And there's going to be moments where you're you're feeling the panic set in, right, of like yeah. you're feeling like, oh, the stock market's down. Yeah, I have to quit a toxic job or I have to I have to pay for this emergency that came up. And so Really, the goal the goal with Treasury is to not only get people invested, because that's what we're seeing is women just aren't investing at the same rate men are because of this fear, fear of doing something wrong, fear of losing their money, just that intimidation factor, but also like making them consistent long-term investors over decades and giving them the tools and the support they need to be able to make that happen. Well, that's awesome. You know, I have to ask you something. I wasn't going to, but it's just in my brain right now, and I have to ask. Have you ever 
can you share a story where you helped someone financially or gave them financial advice and it had a positive outcome? I know I'm going off a little bit here, but I just was like, she has to have some really good story in there. She's helped so many people and I just want to hear one or if someone helped you, can you share one for me? Sure. Um, Again, this is the coolest part of my work is we get these messages now every five minutes. Like it's just crazy. Um, One of my favorites, and she's actually become a friend of mine. She was originally a coaching client and now we're friends. Um, And because I have not asked her permission to say this, I'm going to keep her anonymous, but it's going to make me cry actually. Um, she is a uh, a woman of color and um, didn't grow up with a lot. And what happened was she grew up in a in a um, in a very distinct financial and familial situation where money was evil. Money was was bad and evil. And she has worked over the last five or so years to reframe that narrative. And the interesting thing is she has literally taken her salary. She makes five times more money now than she did three years ago. She is fully maxing out her Roth IRA, feels confident enough to do that. And I think the most impactful thing is um, her mother was diagnosed with a pretty significant illness last year. And she, in telling her story to me, has said, the best part about being financially stable is I don't ever have to worry about her costs and her health care and taking care of her. And so I think that that's that's again, one of the most incredible parts about this is she's like, I can give my mom every comfort that she needs right now. And she's like, I can pay for her $500 orthopedic shoes she needs without needing to think about it, you know? And I, in her, her illness, I can take care of her and make sure that she is going to be okay. Um, while also knowing that I've taken care of myself and that I'm financially stable and I'm saving for my retirement and, and, negotiating my own salary and doing all of those things. And so we have so many stories like that. Um, one from another woman who was on two antidepressants at her last job because she was so miserable, took our advice, used our tools, quit her job, now uh, runs her own business. And she goes, I, again, to my, like very similar to my story. She's like, I am confident in every aspect of my life now when I wasn't before. Um, yeah. Women paying off debt, women, negotiating their salary, starting businesses, investing. Even in treasury, we can literally watch somebody come into the workshop scared and intimidated and leave an investor. Like we can literally watch that happen in real time. Those are just amazing stories, Tori. Yeah, it's it's the coolest I'm sure you could just keep going on and on because what you're doing- And I won't because I want to respect your time, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) But there's so many wonderful things and money is a huge thing in everyone's life. It's a stress in everyone's life a lot of times. And if you can be that person that can alleviate that stress or help someone, you're not only helping them, you're helping their whole family and probably for generations. So always ask all my guests the same question. If someone Mm. said, Tori, what does it mean to live richer? What would you say to them? I think, like I've said before, it's it's the ability to make choices about the way you want to live your life. And money isn't a stressor. Like you don't have to think about or money isn't preventing you from making that choice, you know? So for me, when I, again, I think about the life that I've built for myself. And again, this is the kind of feeling that I want every single woman to have is like uh, me being financially stable makes me confident in every other aspect of my life. So when I think about building my business, because we are financially solvent, if a client is, um, not working with us anymore, like it's just not vibing we don't want to work with them anymore. We're not reliant on them as a business and we can let them go if it means 
that that's the right decision for us. If I am out dating, I am dating because I am interested in people for who they are. I am not trying to find somebody who can financially support me, right? If I'm thinking about taking a vacation and and you know, even the the opportunity to do that, to even think about that, I don't have to worry about where I'm going or what I'm doing. And when I get to the airport and I've realized I've forgotten something, I can pay it still it hurts me a little bit, but I can pay the $20, you know, that this $10 neck pillow should have cost, but it's $20 at the airport and I can do that, right? You know, yeah. that's I think the like the freedom to make choices where you're not constantly stressed about how this impacts you or your life and opening up those choices for you to feel comfortable and feeling like you can take care of yourself. I am, again, more confident and more, um, I stand more in my power in every aspect of my life now because I'm not financially dependent on anybody. And the coolest part about that, again, is now that I've taken care of myself, now that I've put on my own oxygen mask, I can go to anybody else and help them put on their oxygen mask now too. And again, that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is I've seen firsthand in my own life how it feels and and how I get to live my life. And I get to um, help a bunch of other women feel that way too. Thanks so much, Tori. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I can tell by women following you and if it be on Instagram, TikTok, or wherever it be, they're going to be living a richer life by taking those tips that you give them and taking your advice and incorporating it into their own lives. I just want to thank you again for coming and being with me today and sharing your story and using your theater background to make it entertaining. Now that I know why it's so entertaining, Tori, it's because (laughs) she's a theater major, folks. That was the secret. I was trying to figure it out, but now I know. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for changing your career path and going out there and helping millions of people every day to live a richer life. Like I always say, live richer. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you go, we'd love for you to subscribe to our show to catch all of our updates. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your burning questions about money and how to live your best life? Reach us at liveRicherPod at GoBankingRates.com.